Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. Today, we are joined by Michael E. Carter from Keene University, and we are going to look at the concept and the history of genocide. It's a really interesting topic. It's a, it's a topic that I'm personally and academically interested in as well. So I'm really excited to, to dive into this historical concept, uh, a modern concept as well. So, Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Jackson. How are you? No, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you very much for asking. Uh, and thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk about this concept with you. My pleasure. Uh, I'm not, we'll, we'll get to it, but there's already one thing you said where I'm going to be like, mm, we'll see about modern. We'll see, what, we'll see how that plays out in our conversations. I might have some interesting takes on that. Well, I'm really looking forward to that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so firstly, how did you kind of get into uh, studying the concept of genocide? I thought, um, to make a pretty long story brief, um, I'm not very good at math, I'm terrible <laughs> at math, and I always sort of fell at the social studies in grade school, because um, in my mind, especially back then, it was pretty straightforward, read the books, this happens, you know, there's not a lot of historiography when you're in sixth grade. Um, so when I got into high school, I ended up in a, you know, freshman year, run-of-the-mill gen ed history class, did well enough, but sophomore year, I was put in an honors class. Um, didn't do well enough grade-wise to stay into honors, I guess, move into what would be, I guess, AP. Um, so I got dropped out of that into another gen and history class. And that changed everything because the teacher who ran that class, which is Rosemary Wilkinson, who is now retired, um, her interest, uh, act, you know, as an activist sort of angle was human rights and genocide studies. And she had an elective of genocide studies and i ended up getting into it from that to that junior of high school senior i took that elective i'm pretty sure that's the only perfect grade i've ever gotten at ever in any sort of course or class at any level and i just went on from there um i went through community college with that focus i went to uh King university for my finishing my undergrad and then my master's with that being the plan so that's that's sort of the origin story. It was just a bureaucratic maneuver in high school that put me right where I needed to be. Oh, fantastic! And yeah, you know, it's always you know things happen for a reason, and you've definitely shown yeah. that you get to those points. And it's amazing oh. how teachers define where we go as well. Yeah, it's really weird because you know you know you look back and you're like, oh, what? If, I have no idea what I would be doing. <laughs> Like, I think, you know, I have obviously friends of mine who are other historians, other historical topic interest me, but you're like, would you want to be a historian of this? I'm like, mm, I'm not sure. I think I found my niche. Um, yeah. Happy accident. Yeah. And that's what we're all doing, aren't we? We're all trying to find our niche. <laughs> so before we go in to discuss the concept of genocide, I think we really firstly had to, we have to look at what is genocide. So do you mind defining that for us? If I say no, the pod, I mean, if I say yes, I do. The podcast ends really quickly now. <laughs> um, the concept of genocide is the brainchild of a Polish lawyer and scholar named Raphael Lemkin. Uh, Lemkin, throughout his entire life, had this interest in the history of, I guess, what we've now referred to as mass atrocity. 
um as a kid he got really interested in like what was going on what with back in the day with the romans and nero and the christians and he sort of moved forward through the history of anti-semitism and he was very you know and even even before the holocaust he had this interest of you know what happened in the armenians and et cetera et cetera uh he would ultimately lose in the holocaust that he was born in he said to be polish i believe the village in which he lived at the time was part of the Russian Empire and now it's part of Belarus, it's Eastern European border. Yeah, but generally he's considered to be a Polish Jew. He lost almost his entire family in the Holocaust. He himself escaped. Uh, he wouldn't necessarily be classified as a survivor. He was able to avoid um, the sort of Nazi expansionism. And in 1944, in a book that he published called Axis Rule and Occupied Europe, where he basically broke down chapter by chapter what was going on in the Axis. He had a chapter that was entitled Genocide. And he put together, you know, it's a hybrid word, um, genos from the Greek tribe, nation, you know, and you know, Latin for killing, genocide, um, basically defined the destruction of a group, um, which in international law has since been considered in whole or in part, and under international law includes ethnic, ethnicity, race, religion, and national origin. So it's 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 quite a quite a broad concept, but a relatively new concept that we're looking at. Yeah. Um, in terms of yeah, so that's that's where we get into sort of the modern thing where I was sort of pointing out before is as something that emerged at the sort of mid you know, late early to mid twentieth century, it is relatively new. Um, less than 100 years. But Lemkin himself, as a scholar, would, you know, in many of his unfinished papers, because he died fairly young in the 50s, um, had drafts of outlines of looking at um, the history of genocide spanning back to the Bronze Age, colonialism, you know. So as a word that exists, genocide is modern. As a phenomenon historically, it is not. Okay. At least in Lemkin's view, which I adhere to. Yeah, and it's quite interesting to see see this this guy who's created the term draw it back right back to that period. But to to kind of look at it in a little bit, how does how does a genocide begin? There's that's actually a very good question. Um, there is. Uh, a, a Holocaust scholar, no, is he, I guess you could say he's a Holocaust genocide scholar, named Gregory Stanton, many years ago, uh, put together the eight stages of genocide, and then he updated it to 10 in the early 2000s, basically outlining the sort of steps that you know, could be followed to enter a genocide. But then, of course, there's exceptions that prove the rule. Um, generally, without going down through all 10, because you know they can come up at different points, you generally have some sort of state-sanctioned or at least state-endorsed uh, discrimination. Um, you're either setting up, a, typically in the form of either setting up a parallel society. So I guess what we now generally refer to as othering. Um, the idea that there are these second-class citizens, third-class citizens, or, or sort of, you know, to borrow a term, you know, from the sort of Indian subcontinent, the idea that there is a untouchable group, there's an out group that 
we are giving a completely parallel you know set of rules to this you know i think that's sort of a muddled answer but there is a discrimination that is put into place that generally then escalates into violence which in turn escalates into what you would consider the intent to completely or partially destroy okay and what kind of what kind of persecution do these these untouchables these second-class citizens often yeah. undergo because it's like you're saying it's a it's a process yeah um to go with the most sort of archetypal holocaust example uh the idea of being removed from civil service the idea of having uh, identification papers that state that you are of this ethnic group or of this religion or of this out group um the restrictions on owning property restrictions on voting rights um you know the whole you know you could just be removed from the civil apparatus entirely um you can get the colonial example of the idea of you know it might begin with the idea of being driven off the land that's yours and then you know now you're a second class citizen you're on territory and then you know can be sort of victimized with impunity you know there's there's many permutations, but that's the, the, the general idea is that you're reduced to a sort of second-class status, to say the least. That's usually where you start to see the building blocks of what accelerates into what you would, you know, what would be mass murder. Uh, and that, those pers- that persecution is definitely uh, from what we've read in like primary accounts, uh, contemporary sources. It's a it's a harrowing experience. But you touch on two terms there as well holocaust and mass murder now uh, um you know what what differentiates the terms holocaust genocide and mass murder because the three very broad terms yeah. they tended to be used interchangeably and i'd be curious to know what's the difference so the di- well let's start with holocaust and genocide because they are probably the two that are most interlinked um at least in the United States, uh, much to my annoyance, uh, at the grade school level, the word genocide shows up once. And that's in the World War II sort of Holocaust unit of the textbook. And then you define what a genocide is, you explain the Holocaust, you never touch it again. I understand why that is, because, you know, it's limits of a textbook, at least especially in this country, but that's how it's set up. But there is a distinct difference. Um, a genocide as I already described, uh, it's distinct from a Holocaust. Holocaust is Greek. It means to destroy, particularly in the context of sacrifice, by fire. It's the term that's been historically applied to the crimes of the Nazis as the title. Um, that's why in some areas, um, Jewish communities, survivor communities, have turned to Shoah, Hebrew for uh, catastrophe rather than holocaust because it, you know you don't want to have that religious connotation of the crematoria um so a, a holocaust or the holocaust is the destruction of the jewish people specifically by nazi barbarians and a genocide would be any other instance of an attempt to destroy a ethnic religious etc cetera, etc cetera, group so a the Holocaust is a genocide. Not all genocides are necessarily "quote unquote" Holocaust, although that's a popular uh, book title 
for a lot of authors who write about genocide just say you know the blank and blank holocaust you know they take the name and i don't particularly i'm not a particular fan of that but you know that's a whole different thing with the publishing industry yeah is uh definitely sometimes we see that narrowing of subjects to sell as opposed yeah. to you know teaching what's actually happened yeah now we've we've looked at the concept and what the concept is and what separates it from other ideas but historically what would be the first example of a genocide this is probably this is probably the most complicated question you're going to ask me because in my view you know genocide is the sort of historical phenomenon that has been occurring since time in my mom uh we don't know um so the short answer is i'm not entirely certain um i know uh yale university scholar ben kiernan in his scholarship and his book book's probably 10 years old by now uh blood and soil goes back as far as the greeks um i know lemkin himself uh, in his unfinished papers, at least had the inkling of what he, I believe, titled biblical genocide. So now we're talking about the question of, you know, Bronze Age sort of, you know, oral histories. Um, the possibility that he would see that in that kind of lens. Um, so I'm willing to say that it's at least as old as what we identify to be the Bronze Age. Um, however, and I was sort of rattling my head around this, you know, last night, there are people that take it further and that's where I'm like, well, now we're going to a little bit off the rails. There is a anthropologist, his name is Jared Diamond. He rightfully gets, you know, flack in the historical community for his takes on, um, colonialism in the Americas, but in one of his books, I think it's entitled The Third Chimpanzee, he says at one point, and I remember this because I believe it's cited on Wikipedia, which is weirdly enough, that he used the term genocide to describe the the destruction of the Neanderthals. And I'm like, not only does that not apply, at least how I see it, it opens up this massive can of worms when it comes to human relationships with other, I guess what we've called non-human persons. So the simplest answer I have is at least the Bronze Age. The more complicated answer is we're not entirely certain, um, and we might not be. We not <clears throat> excuse me. We might not be able to be one hundred percent certain due to I guess the lack of uh, surefire prehistoric evidence. If there is a definitive beginning to this sort of phenomenon, but I'm willing to say at least the Bronze Age at the very best. And it and it's I find it so fascinating that we can't pin that down, yeah. uh, and the the longevity of of this concept uh, is you know most people see it as this you know as they do with totalitarianism this big beast of the twentieth century, whilst it has stretched out across history. Yeah. Now, also as tem- people tend to do, they they narrow it down to twentieth century, but they also tend to to narrow the term genocide as to as a Eurocentric concept. Is it is it more global than that? 
the yes <laughs> the short answer is yes um as far as i have been able to tell to the point where something i'm currently working on uh addresses this um in the pre pre-columbian uh american southwest um as far as i could tell from Lincoln's understanding and the scholarship i've read over the years this is a sort of phenomenon that no human society is immune to. Um, it is on any continent by any group possessed, possessed by a multitude of ideologies um, may be capable of inflicting or perpetrating what we would consider to be genocide. Um, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, national socialist, you know, blood myths and conquest, doesn't matter if it's you know, Stalinistic purges, or it could be as we see it in Rwanda, where it becomes sort of a post-colonial uh, intertribal conflict, or the Balkans, where it becomes sort of quasi-religious. Although the Balkans is a bad example, because again, that's Europe. Of <laughs> um, uh, Southeast Asia, you have numerous examples. Um, Cambodia, uh, the attempt by uh, Pakistan to t to go after the Bangladesh, uh, the Bangladeshis in the seventies, you know, of course, the history of the Americas, um, which pretty much it's fourteen ninety two into the early twentieth century, depending on where you draw the line. It is truly global, and that's one of the main problems. I guess with how the popular, the wider population. Um, well, I'd say, let me rephrase that. It's one of the main problems that gets say the general historical literate population has, let alone the general population, where this misunderstanding that genocide was created as a 20th century term to define a 20th century problem. That is a utter misreading of what Lemkin wrote and he believed and I mean that's a whole other side conversation but I mean the field itself being so young it, excuse me in his death spent the next couple of decades just people basically coming up with their own definition so we ended up with this weird misunderstanding in a lot of spots that for example colonialism didn't apply when in fact you could find his papers in various archives in New York City that literally have him writing Incan as text, you know, in the in the documents themselves. And I, I find it quite because we tend to do the same with totalitarianism, authoritarianism, and nail it down into that. And I, what I find quite quite interesting about the the crossover between our two fields is that often totalitarian regimes are perpetuating these these mass state horrors um but are these actions by these totalitarian regimes you know stalin's ussr hitler's germany are they the model of which other states follow or is there just something that naturally or naturally or manufactured by different regimes if i know that's a complicated question no 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 <laughs> it, it's actually the perfect question because there is a tyranny inherent in the idea 
that the state can mandate and then carry out and attempt to destroy an entire group of people. So there's an inherent tyranny in that. Um, there's an inherent, there's always going to be an aspect of state terrorism in genocidal atrocities that are conducted by a government. But whether or not the Hitlers and Stalins and Maos and, and Paul Potts of the, you know, the 20th century are the model, I'm not entirely sure that part of it is true. Um, I think the model, they tap into the model rather than the model with them. Because democracies are just as capable as, you know, unleashing this kind of horror. Um, you know, colonial examples, manifest destiny in the United States, you know, so on and so forth. But even without, you know, treading that again, even though that is my, you know, precise field of expertise, you can look at Myanmar, most recently with the Rohingya. Uh, prior to the military coup, a couple of, well, a couple of years ago now, by this point, we had a Nobel laureate presiding over a genocidal government. It's almost a parody of itself in the in our understanding of how you know human rights are supposed to work. You know this advocate for democracy, this you know this person that got a Nobel Prize and a, you know a you know a U.S. Congressional Medal of many other accolades is also complicit in the attempt to destroy the Rohingya minority. Like so, I would say. Almost any government um, can perpetuate these kind of crimes um, because you know it's an act of state terrorism. It can be tyrannical. It can be totalitarian, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And I think that's the scary part of it. Is it's almost more comforting if the villain is a Hitler or a Stalin or a Putin or a, you know a Mao. It's comforting because you have your supervillain. You've created this person who is obviously evil, obviously authoritarian, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you differentiate from, all right, well, they can't be, I don't know, a Nobel laureate, a US president, a prime minister, or anything like that. So, you know, yes, but it, it, I think it's a comfort that a lot of people think about, like, this is a problem that can only sort of rise up of the worst of the worst kinds of governments, of the worst kinds of situations, rather than an aspect of state violence that any government can potentially perpetrate. Uh, and I, I like the way that you, you kind of bring out that it's a comfort for people. You know, we we couldn't possibly do this because we're we're this and they're and they're that, and that's what happened over there. It doesn't happen here. I find that that quite that quite interesting. Really, and what? So, if it's, it's... like a, if yeah. I can follow up on that I, real quick, I don't know if this is uh, if there's anything similar in the UK, but I remember at least in conversations in the United States, uh, in the context of genocide, there is always the question: Oh, can it happen here? Can it? And the answer is, you know, typically, yes, it can. It can happen anywhere. But it's always, you know, interesting how, you know, at least in American general population, you know, an American you know, let's say students who might encounter these kind of conversations or whatever, they have to sort of be reminded, like, hey, you know, you got to watch out 
you know, we can't, you know, just hand the keys over to whoever because we're not different necessarily than any other, you know, I guess this could be a whole wider conversation, but I guess we have other topics to touch upon. I'm, I shouldn't have interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, 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 don't, no, don't apologize. No, we, we have, we have uh, a government mandated time where we have to teach the Holocaust. We have to, yeah. we have to warn the next generation of these horrors to try and try and combat it um but you know if it happens in if it can happen in any style of government any nation what are the the processes that allow for it to happen because if there's steps that a state is taking to perpetuate one surely there's a process that's, that's happening parallel to that to allow it well what you should really look for, and this is always a sort of stereotypical example, but you have to literally look for the disenfranchisement of a certain part of the population as the other on a grand scale. Um, so yeah, you can do this with any genocide, but Typically, if you want to speak more broadly in the United States experience, the other that is, you know, is the indigenous population, you know, Native Americans, you know, regardless of the nation of, you know, the nation or territorial origin, you know, you could read 200 years of American history and it basically reads the same, that, you know, we tell you have to go, we, we need the land, we need yada, 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 they're heathens, they're barbarians, et cetera, et cetera. Even in the modern context in sort of the modern 21st century you know way of looking at it you still have people that are referred to in those terms not just indigenous people but I mean in general the idea of the creations of an outgroup I think that's what you really have to be afraid of because you know once the machine you know, I, I don't want to say it definitively because you can't do this definitively but it gets a lot harder to stop a process once it's begun. I think that's one of the logics. Um, I don't know if this is true for Holocaust education in the UK or genocide education in the UK, but in the United States, or at least in the states that authorize it, like New Jersey and stuff like that, one of the main ways um, sort of Holocaust education is taught early on in kids that you might not want to talk about, you know, massacres and camps with is to bring it up as sort of anti-prejudice, like an almost anti-bullying kind of way to try to see it in the brain, like, hey, you know, there are certain things that you should be wary of. Does it work? No, because teenagers tend to be just terrible people <laughs> a lot of the time to each other. But I guess that's how I'd say, you know, if there's an answer in there anywhere, because I started to ramble, um, start looking for the creation of an outgroup. Start looking for the rhetoric that a certain group of people can perhaps be marginalized um, in a matter that is justifiable and right. Um, yeah, and I think to put that in a more definitive way, when the language of bigotry gets state-sanctioned is the time where you really have to start going, hold on, what's going on here? Uh, and that's, that's a fantastic way of putting that is 
it has to be allowed at some point and people have to buy into it yeah. uh, which is a really nice way of of looking at that and looking at how it's allowed to happen and there was something else that i wanted to talk about as well looking at genocide and how it's how it's viewed now recently we have seen this di- kind of diplomatic tussle uh, <laughs> between the us and turkey where turkey recognized america's actions towards their native americans as as genocide and the americans recognized the turkish actions uh towards the armenians i believe as genocide as well uh so you know what were these two events and why were these two events not previously recognized as genocide um well starting off with turkey uh turkey has a habit of basically threatening everyone under the sun that does not maintain uh, the post-World War I uh, denialism um, that Turkey has picked up that the Ottoman Empire did not commit genocide against the Armenians, the Syrian, and Pontic Greek and other Christian minorities within their borders. Um, they did the same thing with France, if I recall. France, I believe, recognized a couple of years ago under, uh, I believe it was under Macron, if not under his predecessor. And Turkey turned around and said, "All right, we're going to take, the, we're going to recognize the Algerian War as genocide." You know, and I think the same thing happened. I think with the United States uh, recognizing the Uyghurs and China recognizing the same thing. The you know what happened with the Native Americans. <sighs> The, the weird thing about that is from a scholarly perspective, as someone who's in favor of genocide recognition, when a sort of, when a sort of country goes, oh, okay, well now we'll recognize the Native American genocide. I'll be like, good, good. That's not a threat. <laughs> um, I think to get back to the initial question, um, genocide recognition especially when there's a country that denies it uh, and then feel threatened by it, like in the case of the tur- uh, Turkey. Um, because the Genocide Convention basically says, in so many words, that if there is a genocide ongoing, you're supposed to respond to it. You're supposed to react to it. Um, so that's why the United States generally does not tend to recognize genocides while they happen um, or you know, say that there is a genocide while they're happening because they're usually driven to respond. The reason why the United States has generally not recognized the Armenian genocide um, under prior presidencies before President Joseph Biden is to put it in as blunt as possible, Turkey was necessary for the wars in the Middle East. We needed to be able to use Turkey as an ally, to use Turkey as an intelligence asset, as a as a supplier of air bases, et cetera, et cetera. Now that that immediate military need has gone down, it you know, became acceptable for a democratic president to recognize the Armenian genocide. And I make a distinction about that because I'm not necessarily sure a Republican president would. Um, the former president certainly wouldn't. Um, and this, but at least in sort of leftist politics in the United States, it's an open secret that politicians, when they're in the Senate or when they're running for office, um, well, will say, oh, I'll recognize the Armenian genocide. And then they become president and they don't because 
they realize, oh, we may need these people. We can't make them mad. Um, so that's, I guess, the root of the whole democratic, I'm sorry, the whole um, diplomatic dust up that we saw between the United States and Turkey over the term is because Turkey doesn't like when its feelings are hurt, when there's a historical reality that's recognized. And, you know, that's just that. I mean, the United States, to my knowledge, has never used the term genocide to recognize anything done to indigenous people. I believe there has been sort of a lackluster apology given by the Bureau of Indian Affairs years ago under President Obama. And I know for a fact the term genocide is used once in the Museum of the Native American, which is sort of Smithsonian affiliated in New York City to describe what happened in California. But to my knowledge, that is the only time genocide is used in the Native American context with federal funding in the United States. I may be wrong because I'm not, you know, omnipotent, I don't know everything, um, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. Um, so I guess Turkey was like, okay, well, if you're gonna recognize our dirty open secret, we're gonna say yours, but you know, um, it doesn't hurt the feelings of the United States because everyone who's sort of historically literate knows that's the term for what happened to the indigenous people, you know? If you ask Joe Biden off camera, off the record, if he thinks that genocide was done by the US government, I hope at least he'd say yes. <laughs> and yet No, I mean, we've had, we've had even civil rights leaders. I mean, there's um, one of the books by, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. literally says it. Like it's been an open secret. Like anyone with a knowledge of the term and the history knows genocide is the correct term. But that's what, you know, but that's just the, the sort of idea in Turkey's head. It's like, oh, you've you've offended us by saying that you know the, the Ottoman Turks committed genocide. So we'll say that your settler population did that. And again, to end as where I started from you know academic sort of recognition point of view, I said, good. Everyone keep calling everyone else out. Good. <laughs> keep doing it. I don't care. You know, I'm pro-recognition. As long as it's not like slanderous, because you know, there are instances where someone could say, oh, well, I think, you know, this X might have been, you know, so, you know, I can't think of an example because one has not been done. And I don't want to give an, ex yeah. <laughs> make up an example, but, you know, most of the time where these nations call each other out, they're recognizing accurate genocide. So I'm like, all right, as long as they keep doing that, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you definitely demonstrating the international relations and yeah. people's ropey relationship with the word genocide or definitely yeah. their ropey relationship with their own well, historical actions well it's, it's there's an infamous instance in the clinton administration i think it's 1994 yeah because it's during the rwandan genocide so it has to be 1994 where forgive me for forgetting her name and her exact role but she's pretty uh, pretty infamous for saying this. There's a, I, I want I, I don't remember if it's a press screening or a State Department, whatever. It's a publicly, it's, it's on video, whatever it is. It's a government official who is asked about genocide and, and you know, it's like, well, you know, there's been acts of genocide. And the reporter responds, like, how many acts of genocide there that there have to be a genocide? 
I'm butchering that to a certain degree and forgive me, but like, that's the sort of weaseling <laughs> that, you know, happens in, at least in the U S government. And I'm sure similar things happen in other, um, you know, you know, Anglo-European countries when it comes to that question, because if there's something actively going on as you're a signatory to the convention, you have to do something. So that so you end up in this weird place where it's like, well, we're not going to call it a genocide and then we're going to wait until it's over and then maybe we'll say it is, maybe we say it isn't. Maybe we'll just not touch it. It's one of the reasons I'm, I've sort of resigned myself to the history of genocide and not necessarily the active sort of international relations, international law side of it because it gives me a little more leeway to just say, look, Len can believe this, this adds to this genocide, as opposed to like, well, if you go by, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, <laughs> it, I, I cannot think of wanting to dig through like the international relations and how the State Department does or does not do something. I could think about thousand things I'd rather be doing. <laughs> it's definitely, um, you know, it's a, it's a minefield, research-wise. Yeah. But this is a great segue into my next question. Actually, is that you know there's we have this term genocide, this concept genocide. Is there a difference between, you know, how we see it academically, the, the public perception of what genocide is? And then, you know, then again, we have this other layer of what the UN says genocide is. I, I would add a third group. If I, I would say you have sort of academics, which I can subdivide, but I won't. Um, then you have the United Nations, and there's a bit of crossover there. And then I would say that you have the general public, because just to not, I don't want to go over things I've already said, but the general public basically thinks genocide, Holocaust, done. Um, it's what um, one of my former professors and now colleagues and mentor figures, Dr. Dennis Klein, refers to as the Holocaust paradigm. The model that people see genocide as is in the sort of shape and work of the Holocaust. And that doesn't work as much as, and, you know, as often as you may think it does. But getting back to what you were actually saying. So what is the difference between genocide studies as an academic sort of question and the UN Genocide Convention that was signed in the 50s? Well, for one, the UN definition uh, clips away a few things. Um, it makes certain definitive stuff based off of Lemkin. Lemkin. Lemkin was a proponent of it. He worked tirelessly to get it passed. He supported enforcing it in domestic law as well. Like these are efforts that might as well have driven him to his grave. Like that's how dedicated he was to this. So I don't want anything I say to detract from the fact that he was a supporter of the convention. Um, but the convention is not a one-to-one um, sort of common copy of his work. And that's, I think, where the difference lies. Um, Lemkin sort of draft out the idea of what he called a political technique of genocide. The idea of targeting, you know, political infrastructure, political groups. But we now refer to that as politicide. The reason we have politicide as this whole separate sort of term for it is because, to be honest, the Soviet Union didn't want political crimes in there. 
And for that matter, the United States didn't want cultural crime because there was a major fear in both countries that their histories over the fact, you know, a couple of decades to 100 years would then be scrutinized. I'm being simplistic about this. But so you end up with, you know, the international law that is, you know, still effective, still obviously important, unquestionably important, although the United States, although championed it, didn't sign it until Reagan, but either way. The difference being that, you know, it was sort of built differently under international law to cater to the targeting of religious and racial and ethnic groups. Um, while if you go back to sort of Lincoln's Ma, he had a more wider view of it. Um, with international law, you get in that same tough spot that I keep referring to, the fact that, you know, if you call something a genocide, you now are kind of obligated to respond to that fact. So that's why, you know, they get cold feet and they sort of try to weasel their way out of it. While an academic historian can be like, okay, you know, 200 years ago, X happened, 50 years ago, X happened, it's a genocide. You don't really have to worry about, um, you know, the wider implications, generally. Sometimes yeah. you have to worry, you know. <clears throat> Sometimes you got to watch your audience. Um, but generally, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to name names but because I'm actually pretty friendly with them. Um, but I remember my first year of grad school and one of the courses I got into a, a discussion um, on the issue of memory and the idea of whether or not certain information about an atrocity should remain buried if there is this risk that tensions might, you know, inflame once more. And although a controversial position, that part of me is like, well, I don't think you should just bury it because now you're saying, now we're creating a sort of artificial truth. I don't know, that's a whole other debate, but you get into the weeds with this stuff. When it, you know, when you start, you know, I kind of went off the rails and went into the question of historical work, but I think that's the core difference between the convention or international law and sort of academic work of genocide studies, I think academically, historically speaking, it's more, what's the exact word? It's more unchained. It's more untethered because you don't have to worry about even you know the immediate concerns as much as if you were within the State Department or the UN or something like that. Yeah. I mean, we, we tend to call a spade a spade uh yeah. when when we see it as opposed to you know bringing up you know classicide politicide democide yeah. to kind of add to, to these to put it i don't remember the exact author and the exact work but i have a book in my library i have a couple books actually but one in particular <coughs> uh is about a massacre of a, a sort of reconstruction post-reconstruction a massacre of African Americans in the South. I forget exactly where, and I don't want to name a state uh, and be wrong. But the author of the book called it a genocide, and I read it, and I was like, you know what? There is an argument here. You will never hear that from the mouth of a U.S. government official. You will never, you know, just because of the domestic implications. You know, 
you're more likely to hear that from the UN, but then that gets to be, yeah. more, you know, so that ends. But what I'm saying is, you know, there's more, I don't want to call it wiggle room because it feels like it's cheating. But I think at on a certain level, it may be closer to Lemkin's original thought process um, to look at it academically than what it is now at the international level. Uh, international law, that is. Yeah. And I have a strange feeling I might get in trouble with that comment, but we'll, 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 no. <laughs> well, blame me, blame me if you do. That's I yeah, okay. That, that, was, that was entrapment, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> now we're, we're, we're touching on small different ideas, and I definitely want to expand on the modern concept, if you will. Um, now, genocide isn't something that's exclusively set in the past we've looked at today. Um, now, where in the world do you currently see a genocide occurring? And, and does it look different to the genocide of the past? Where do I see it occurring? In short order, I could probably name five of them, if not more. Um, <coughs> I've already referenced um, the Uyghurs in China. I've already referenced the Rohingya matter in Myanmar, which is still going on. I'd refer to the current Saudi military intervention and blockade in Yemen uh, in the same terms. I would refer to the Brazilian destruction of the Amazon in those same terms. And I have seen a fairly large number of prominent genocide scholars endorse the issue of Ukraine in those terms. Um, I will be honest, there was a panel a couple of days ago that I missed with a lot of heavy hitters in my field talking about it. I've heard that there's very good arguments. I have not listened to that yet. So I'm going to officially say that I'm not going in there yet. Um, there's certainly been genocidal language coming out of the Russian government. Um, but that is, you know, the short list. Um, you know, and that's a wide range that, you know, China, Myanmar, you know, Saudis, you know, Saudis in Yemen, Brazilian government in the Amazon, potentially Russia and Ukraine. So it's diverse and the tactics are diverse. And so the question of, is it different than historically? There is a genocide scholar named Daniel Jonah Goldhagen. And he gets a lot of slack and some of it, again, rightfully so, because some of his historiography on the Holocaust is a little iffy. But I remember in the early 2000s, he gave a book talk to promote his newer book, um, book called World, uh, Worse Than War, and was also made to a PBS documentary. And he's sitting at the sort of talks by Google, you know, that old Google TED talk. And he says that, well, I think that the future of genocidal conflict um, will be increasingly using farm tools in the style of Rwanda. He was completely in it really well. That was a completely incorrect um, prediction. It's been almost universally, you know, modern military force um, or, in the, or camps or, you know, it's modern technology. And to, in that degree, it's different than most of the genocide throughout human history, but just linear technological progression. Um, but in terms of, is it that much different than the crimes of the 20th century? 
Not really. Um, you have the idea of, especially with the Chinese Uyghur example, you have, you hit all the, you know, check all the marks. You have, you know, trains. You have camps. You have forced labor. You have reports of sterilization. Uh, sterilization um, reports that you know i think there was allegedly a couple of years ago they supposedly stopped hair at the u.s border that was supposedly uyghur in origin you know you still hit all the marks that you would sort of i guess you would sort of think in the holocaust um so in the vast sort of bend of history yeah we've reached you know the point where technological you know military industrial genocide is still the brand since I guess you would argue probably the Armenian genocide into the Ottomans. But in terms of where we've been, it is different. And I don't see it's going backwards. I think that was Goldbegin's mistake, that he thought that genocide was going to become a local and sort of generalized and sort of tribal. I don't mean tribal like in terms of indigenous, like it'd be like small scale, like Rwanda. And I think that was wrong. I don't think he could have, he foresaw correctly the idea that we would still have, I, I guess, if you want to be honest, world powers, you know, not so much in the case of Myanmar, but China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Brazil are all significant economic players on the global stage. And they're engaging in this kind of behavior within their spheres of influence. I think that was the miscalculation that the sort of heading into the 2000s, heading into the 2010s, we would have been beyond the idea of world powers doing this kind of stuff. So again, the rambling. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, a, it's, a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating perspective and certainly builds upon an idea that I'm personally fascinated in of, of cyclical history, uh, where rest, re history tends to repeat itself. Um, and, and it's definitely demonstrating that now. I, I tell my I tell my students that history doesn't repeat itself, but history rhymes. You we we sort of you'll find similar things tend to happen um, because I mean this is this is a weird statement to say, but on a certain level, there is a logic to those that perpetrate genocide. It's not a psychosis, it's not a madness. They, as a state, as they identify a problem. They identify this is the outgroup X, they're traitors, they're worthless, they're, you know, whatever. They're foreigners, they're parasites, whatever, whatever the sort of thing. And the logic, the fix, is to get rid of them. That's the, that's the perverted sort of evil logic of genocidal perpetrators. Um, and that is something that will constantly come up in the themes of tyranny and nationalism and, you know, authoritarianism or even in, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's not a surprise that that's the sort of framing of a lot of modern genocide is that it does rhyme. It's the same tune to a certain degree. You know, I guess the remix, if you want to just put it that way, you know. That's that's that uh, the remix is probably the probably the best, most apt way of saying. It. You see that recycling of language, 
um, or the remixing of language to fit uh, their own narrative. Now, on on a lighter note, on a lighter note, uh, and as a as a final fun question as we do for all our guests here on the History of Jackson podcast, uh, you are also a American historian, uh, and I'd like to ask you who is your favorite character in American history? That's a good question. My favorite figure in American history. If I have to settle it, probably without a shadow of a doubt, is Benjamin Franklin. Um, for a couple of reasons. Um, but Benjamin Franklin, to my knowledge, and I'm pretty confident in saying this, <laughs> is the only founding figure in the United States that is on record as opposing an instance of genocidal violence. Um, he, in his usual sort of satirical wit, basically dragged the, the perpetrators of an Indian massacre in Pennsylvania, uh, basically to sum it up with saying that, you know, your victims, uh, the Conestogas, would have been safer anywhere else in the world. And he goes on a list. He's like, Africa, anywhere. Uh, he would have been safer anywhere else in the world than being your neighbors. Like he does, you know, he calls them out in force and then goes on to sort of help the government keep them from, you know, basically laying siege to Philadelphia. Um, but yeah, um, that's, you know, you could sort of look at the history of genocide in the United States and a lot of it happens early on, you know, the sort of colonial days, you know, I guess we can blame that on the British, which I will. Um, and, but, you know, once, you know, the revolution, you start to get, you know, you start to see the creep westward. A lot of founders, a lot of presidents, you don't get that from them, that kind of sort of forceful, you know. So yeah, I will say, Benjamin Franklin, um, definitively. And there is a, I'm friends with someone, I'll tell you their name after the podcast, because yeah. I want to, uh, that I not only think you should have on, but if you want to talk about Franklin, they're the person. Fantastic. Well, uh, you've definitely given us a different slant on Benjamin Franklin, which is not a uh, well-known history for, for anyone really so it's a fantastic slant now as always our listeners who want to go away our listeners and watchers uh, would like to go away and learn more about these topics now what what books podcasts or anything would you like to recommend that they go away and have a look at uh, mm. to learn more obviously apart from this one uh, about the concept of genocide and, and its history there has been fairly recently um, over the last couple of years 10 years maybe a pretty good amount of sort of general public-facing books um, that cover some of the stuff that I would say um, could cover, you know, the history of American genocide. Um, Jackson Land is written by a NPR host, Stephen, Stephen Keep. Uh, it's pretty good covering of the Cherokee removal 
um, in the Southeast. There was a book a couple of years ago that's being made into a Leonardo DiCaprio movie, um, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is about the FBI sort of tracking the killers of people on the Osage Indian Reservation, murdering them in order to possess their oil rights. And there are sort of colonial roots to that. Um, but that's not an answer to the genocide question. Um, if you really want to get into the thick of genocide studies, um, there is David Stannard's American Holocaust, um, which is a couple of decades old. I think it's like 20 years old at this point, if not older. No, definitely older. Um, but he sort of deals with the whole um, sort of clash of, you know, Europeans and indigenous forces. And he does a really good job to basically say, look, you know, you have all these people that were saying, you know, these Native Americans are uncivilized, they're beastly. But then he'll cut to it and say, do you know what it was like to live in Spain in 1520? Like, do you understand the, you know, the level of, you know, um, there's also um, Adam Jones is a Canadian genocide scholar. He's written multiple editions of a book called Genocide, a Comprehensive Introduction. But that's literally, might as well be a textbook. Um, do I? I don't think I have mine at, at, you know, at grabbing distance, but, you know. Um, Ben Kiernan, Blood and Soil, another similar sort of multi-hundred page look at the global history of genocide. Um, I will say this, uh, perhaps as a better way to run, uh, sort of sum up my ramblings. Um, if anyone is watching this and is really interested in a particular topic or a particular direction, hit me up on Twitter. I will invite the internet to send me direct messages. <laughs> And I well, will where respond. can they find you? Where can they find you? In they your can work? respond to me at, oh yeah, you should probably tell them this, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> at Deck of Carter. Um, I thought it was a pun, when, cool pun when I made the account. I was wrong. Um, D-E-C-K-O-F-C-A-R-T-E-R. -E That's my Twitter profile. Um, I'm on there. I don't know. And I'll make yeah. sure the link to your Twitter and your website are in the description below for our listeners so they can, Thank you. can interact with you and find your work as well. Yeah. For, oh. for now, the DMs are open. We'll see what happens. If, yeah. the, if, the, if, the, if your audience begins to you know, check, you know, get a little uppity, I might have to close the DMs. But right now, <laughs> if, you, if you ask me you know, for recommendations, I'll give you them. Um, I'll try to point you in the right direction or in the direction of someone who might be better than me. Oh, fantastic. And you've given us such a fantastic, comprehensive, uh, sailing look at the concept of genocide, its history, and the various implications that it might have on the world. So thank you very much, Michael. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been amazing. My, my pleasure. I really hope you and your audience found some answers in my name <laughs> rambling. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, it was always a pleasure. I, I absolutely love having conversations with scholars, friends, you know, whatever. And, you know, I'm always open to second conversations if ever you want to have one. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very much, Michael. And for all of you listening, uh, if you did enjoy this episode with myself and Michael, please make sure to leave a like, a review, even possibly share it to some of your friends and family if you think they can learn from our conversation.
Well, thank you very much, guys. And I'll see you next episode where we've got a fantastic episode lined up. So keep waiting around for that one. And I'll see you all later. Bye.